Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It is Tuesday, February 27th. How to keep affordable housing units affordable? We hear about a new report that looks at this issue in the islands. We learn about a new degree program to launch this fall, responding to what those in the construction industry say is needed to meet the current workforce demand. And a free hula show that comes with strings attached. Will plans for an evening luau at the Waikiki Shell materialize? A watchdog group for Kapilani Park explains why it doesn't think the luau is a good fit. Plus, we learn more about plans for the Cirque Waikiki show just down the street from the Shell as the outrigger looks to fill a need for evening entertainment venues. You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. A new report out looks at the state of affordable housing projects across Hawaii. How do you keep them affordable? It's an issue that lawmakers are taking up later today. As the report warns, thousands of units may soon lose their affordability. HPR's Ashley Mizuo joins us this morning. Hi. Morning. So today they're going to be talking about affordable housing at the state legislature in a joint meeting. The AARP Hawaii came out with this report yesterday that talks about how maybe 11,000 units could expire, their affordability could expire within the next 20 years. So basically, as you know, affordable housing project developers are giving funding subsidies, and in return, they agree to keep the units affordable for a set period of time. AARP Hawaii commissioned the report from this um, nonprofit on the mainland called Smart Growth America. Here's their director of housing research, Michael Rodriguez. Those units came in and they came online 30-some years ago. That tends to be around the uh, time period. So we're talking about things that were built in the 80s, 90s, actually. And that wave of expiration is coming through. And if you do nothing now, something will be done, we hope. That's the magnitude. So you're going to lose about two-thirds, a bit over two-thirds of the affordable subsidized units in the state uh, in a do-nothing scenario. And are we talking rentals here? Um, It's both rentals and owned units. And AARP, you know, decided to do this study because they heard from people scrambling to find housing after they found out their units reached its expiration date. And so AARP Hawaii decided that the state should have some type of comprehensive outlook on how many units are going to expire. For AARP Hawaii State Director Kaylee Lopez, the data can empower people to start planning. Some projects are going to have an expiration date because that's how the agreement was placed for how the project was funded. So in those instances, you know, five, ten years out prior to that, begin working with residents around either how to start looking for another affordable rental location or how they build their own assets and equity at some point to be able to afford to live maybe in another location they can now afford that's not part of a program. So here's how kind of the numbers break down from the report. In the near term, things don't look as bad. They say a little over 1,000 units will expire between 2023 and 2025. But as time goes on, we'll see even larger drop-offs. So between 2031 and 2035, we'll see 2,700 expire and then 2036 to 2040 to a little over 2000 again and then with huge losses in 2041 through 2045 and that's about a little over 5000 um, units that would expire their affordability would expire and the reason this is how it is is because a majority of these expiring units are low income housing tax credits and commonly referred to as LIHTC and this is a little wonky so stick with me LIHTC the way that LIHTC works is that developers are selected through a point-based system. And although the federal government usually mandates a 30-year affordability period, projects can score higher if they increase their affordability period to up to 61 years. And that just makes it more competitive because these types of LIHTC funding are really competitive to get. Federal low-income housing tax credits are given to states based on population size. So for example, Illinois gets 28 million versus Hawaii, we only get 3.3 million because our population is so much smaller. Hmm. Um, so ARP Director Lopez said um, maybe you know there, there should be a way for more expensive states like Hawaii to get more funding even though our population size is lower because of how much farther money goes to build in a state like Illinois versus you know Hawaii. And I just want to note that 
rarely are any affordable housing projects funded by just a singular program. Often LIHTC is combined with other funding, like the state rental housing revolving fund, for example. So anyway, that's why we see that massive drop off between 2041 and 2045, because not only are huge amounts of units from LIHTC funding expiring, but also a chunk of state program funded units also start expiring at the same time. Feels like a super crisis. Yeah. <laughs> Not good, but it's not all bad news because there are some solutions and mitigations that the state is looking at. So the state does have some tools to incentivize private owners to keep units affordable. The Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation said in an email that developers can be awarded tax credits to rehabilitate projects for extra use of affordability. An example they gave was Pauahi Kapuna Hale in Honolulu's Chinatown, which increased its affordability period for an extra 56 years to fund a rehabilitation project on the property. And that's just because, you know, as the buildings get older and older, the maintenance costs go up and sometimes it'll be feasible for private owners to, you know, get more tax credits and increase the long term of affordability in order to, you know, make all of those maintenance adjustments. So a little under half of the state's affordable housing units are owned by nonprofits and public entities. And so that's a really good thing because you can pretty much count on those staying affordable even after expires because obviously they want to provide affordable housing as opposed to like maybe a private owner that's more business oriented. Catholic Charities is a nonprofit that has over 400 affordable housing units and is continuing to build more. They also help place people in housing. So here's their legislative liaison, Betty Lou Larson, who says there needs to be both long-term and short-term solutions to this. What's the plan for those that are expiring soon to help the tenants look at or work with the tenants and landlords to have a plan, not just let it expire and then do something? But again, we want to prevent this in the long-term. I have to say, there are for-profits that do very nice projects, and there are for-profits that are very community-minded. But again, in 50 years, we don't know who's going to be there, who's going to be making the business decision. And it's a business decision. It's not necessarily that their mission is to keep housing affordable. Yeah, obviously people looking because the need is so great. Right, yeah. And, you know, HHFDC, Hawaii Housing Development Corporation, is also suggesting more safeguards for tenants, such as possibly requiring owners to give a minimum of 12 months notice that an affordability period will be ending or limiting the amount of rent increases that, that they can issue at once. HHFDC is also building more affordable housing. Um, its five-year projection has a total of 9,600 affordable units coming online. And I wanted to note that HHFDC has put out its own projections of expiring affordability that differ pretty dramatically from the AARP study. And AARP says that this is probably because their figures come from a broader pool of subsidies that HHFDC doesn't administer, so it doesn't track. Both will be presenting their findings to the state legislature in a joint housing committee today at 1 p.m. Yeah, so I imagine lawmakers will want to find out why the discrepancy, um, but Regardless, it's not a good sign and, and it's, uh, you know, a red flag that, that it's something we need to look out for. Right. And because it's so far away, you know, there, the state does have some time to plan. And there are some bills at the legislature that might help with affordable housing. So AARP is advocating for two measures in the state legislature, one that could remove some restrictions counties impose on building accessory dwelling units. And that would just like give people the power to to build more of those, um, of course, with some restrictions so that there aren't as many monster homes. I think that's a big concern. And one another one that would allow office buildings to be converted to housing. And, you know, we see that hap- happen downtown, but obviously they would want it to be more um, focused on affordable housing because mm-hmm. the one downtown is a luxury property. Right. So both of those have hearings this week. And then another bill that they were interested in would have allowed for religious, medical, or educational institutions to build housing on excess property. But that bill actually die this session. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. They're, they're looking at these uh, uh, prospects because we just have to really make a dent, you know, in our housing crisis and, and, and increase the inventory. Right, and I mean, it goes back to the whole cost of living thing here, right? And so this is something that the legislature has been tackling for years and years and years, and they're just trying to find all these different ways to increase affordable housing. So this is just another thing to be looking out for. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, certainly eye-opening. We've been talking to HPR's Ashley Mizuo. I'll look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. Thank you.
support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with Hawaii Appleseed and RISE, Residential Youth Services and Empowerment, to help end homelessness in Hawaii. On the next Fresh Air, Busy Phillips, a star of the new movie musical adaptation of Tina Fey's Mean Girls. And she's in the streaming series Girls 5 Eva about a girl group that reunites decades after their one hit. Phillips' first big role was in the series Freaks and Geeks. In her memoir, she's written about misogyny she's faced in Hollywood and in her personal life. Join us. Fresh Air, beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Richardson School of Law. Its Master of Laws provides specializations in environmental, international, and other fields for attorneys from the U.S. and around the world. Law.hawaii.edu. about the need for more than 2,000 workers at the Pearl Harbor shipyard for a massive $3 billion project to modernize the docks. Today, we spotlight a new program to help contractors develop a workforce, in particular on the construction management side. White Pacific University just announced it will offer the state's first master's degree program this fall. We talk with HPU Vice President and Provost Jennifer Walsh about what's in store. Many of our employers have come to us and said that they are looking for help in growing a pipeline of locals who would be able to fill some of these really important high-need jobs. We all know the difficulties of trying to import labor from the mainland. There's always the concern that people aren't going to stay or there's not necessarily an alignment of values. And so we you know, really were excited about the prospect of being able to create um, an industry-tailored program that meets that specific need. And construction management was one we started hearing about, oh, about a year ago in earnest. I mean, we had, it had been percolating in conversations prior to that, but it was about last March that we started really um, hearing about the critical need. Of course, that was before the devastating fires in Lahaina, just compounding the construction that is forecasted over the next decade. So we recognized uh, even in the summer and, and fall as we were watching the aftermath of that devastation, just how important it would be to get this program approved and launched just as soon as possible. Yes. And, you know, we have, of course, the housing crisis that uh, we're in and, you know, there are plans for all kinds of projects from high rises to mid rise buildings just to deal with our affordable housing crunch. We've got to be able to build our workforce. Exactly. And that we had several meetings with the General Contractors Association here in Hawaii to really talk through what specific skills and pieces of the curriculum they would want to see highlighted in our program. So again, we, we think this is an industry tailored program that will meet that specific need. And one of the things that we heard about was not requiring specific engineering credentials for admission because a lot of what they're looking for are really on the business administration or project management side of the construction industry. So we'll give them some exposure to the engineering concepts and principles, you know, how to read draft plans and and things of that nature. But it's really designed to be a comprehensive, holistic program that allows people to come in no matter what their undergraduate degree path may have been. We have right now proposed two concentrations. One would be really around advanced um, construction management types of topics, and that would include things like construction procurement and contracts, project management tools and software using the specific software that construction managers use on site. Of course, then a hands-on internship with one of the local sites here in Hawaii. But we also have a second concentration in business administration. So we're really thinking about that engineer or someone perhaps who's coming out of the technical side, but are less familiar with a basic business administration concepts such as financial information, complex financial decision making, and um, even some of the soft skills around team building and leadership. So we think because of those two options, we really are able to meet 
the needs, no matter who um, shows up on day one. So who are likely to be candidates in this? I mean, if the construction industry is behind this and is asked for something, would it work where those companies are then allowing their current employees to work on this additional certification while they're working? Exactly. We've intentionally created the curriculum to be very flexible. It's not in a cohort model. People can jump in and stop out if needed because of work-related or family-related pressures. But we are hoping that this could be done on a part-time basis or full-time if people really want to make that a priority. But we're anticipating that the staff who are perhaps already on site that need some of this advanced education and training would then be recommended or even sponsored by industry partners to complete this degree program. We're offering it right now in person in downtown Honolulu, but we're also making plans to offer an online version that would perhaps be more appealing to our neighboring island sites or or potentially people who are on the mainland, but they've been assigned to a Hawaii-specific project and are looking to come in. Some of the curriculum is very much tailored to Hawaii needs. So the labor laws, the contract laws, even workshops on sustainability, importance of revering the aina, those types of cultural sensitivities have been embedded into the courses and supplemental activities so that the graduates of these programs should be very well prepared to work anywhere in the state. Well, I have to ask, so who's going to be teaching these classes? You know, I mean, <laughs> are these, yeah, are these uh, industry people who've they, been yeah. around the block a few yeah. times, built a few high rises? Exactly, right? So we that, that was my initial question was, who am I going to hire for faculty? Certainly, there are faculty that have specific doctoral level training and credentials and, and similar types of programs. However, really, we're looking for this to be very applied and practical. So we have been already provided a list of potential adjunct instructors who are right from industry sites and industry companies here in the state that have been excited to think about creating a class and teaching a class. So right now, my College of Business Dean, Mark Rosenbaum, has been working through the initial courses with those industry professionals to talk about case studies and training materials and lesson plans and all of the things that go into course planning right with their expertise embedded from day one. So we're hoping that we can convince them to come on at least once a year and teach one of their specialty courses or recommend someone that would have similar preparation to supplement perhaps your traditional management-related faculty, who, of course, we have uh, many of whom are already in our rosters. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking, too, of the downtown office conversions, right? Because we've seen some work toward converting office spaces to residential. And that's a whole nother animal onto itself, as opposed to just building something from the ground up. That's exactly right. We're, we're about to open the doors in a few months to a brand new science lab facility that's uh, on Fort Street in downtown. And of course, because it's, you know, Chinatown, we've uncovered some, you know, historical artifacts as we've been doing that renovation. So that adds a whole nother layer of complexity is that, you know, the island has many of these archaeologically significant sites and how to handle that in a, in a respectful, appropriate way is definitely going to be part of what our learners will figure out with the guidance of their expert faculty. So, yeah, whether it's dealing with EV in the ground that they've Mm -hmm. unearthed at a construction site or just the complexities of dealing with air conditioning and plumbing when you go from office space to residential. To to residential, exactly. And and as we've been trying to negotiate additional housing for our students, uh, more on the undergraduate side, but we've had to, you know, go through some of those machinations on our own to say, okay, if we were to convert this vacant building, what would it look like and how much would it cost and who would be the right partners to line up for that type of complex project? And then uh, what type of like financial funding are, are you getting from the trades? Well, we're really pleased that Trade Media Hui uh, gave us a startup gift of $25,000 from their educational fund. Really, this is helping us to identify subject matter experts who will assist with the curriculum build. It will also go into some initial student support and marketing efforts so that we can help launch strong uh, in August. We're just so pleased by that partnership. They've been wonderful, wonderful to work with over the last couple of months. And their enthusiasm for this degree and NHBU has been really inspiring. Uh, we're excited that 
We have potential people who've offered to either sponsor their employees to come and offset some of the costs of tuition. We've also built into our financial model for this program a generous local industry MOU um, scholarship that would be available to anyone who's already here in Hawaii or is being sponsored or, or working for one of our industry partners. So we're trying to make the rates very competitive to University of Hawaii. We don't want there to be any competition between us and UH, so we're aligning our tuition really with what we would find at the in-state schools um, intentionally so we can make ourselves affordable and accessible to anyone who wants this advanced degree. Uh, that was Jennifer Walsh, provost in, at Hawaii Pacific University. The school plans to uh, offer a new degree program for construction project managers in the fall. HPU expects to roll out more details later this week. When you support HPR, you support journalism about our islands, from our islands. There is no shortage of homes to solve Maui's housing crisis, says Mayor Richard Bisson. It's not that we don't have enough homes, it's that we don't have enough money to pay for those particular homes. With your support, HPR brings you stories that affect us all. But 24,000 units, they're already built and they sit empty for much of the year. These properties represent a huge chunk of that tourism economy, but I don't want these families that have been here for generations to have to leave. They only need to house 3,000 to 3,500 families. That represents about 15% of all of the short-term rentals and second homes we have on Maui. It's a large percentage, but it's not so large that I lose hope. And I think we as a people sort of need to prioritize helping each other over profiting from each other. Support news from across our islands on HBR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we're taking a trip through time, all the way back to Captain Cook's last voyage to the Hawaiian Islands. We're spotlighting a young American who was assigned to sail with Captain Cook on the vessel, the Resolution. He was born in 1751, and before coming a, be- becoming a sailor, he dropped out of Dartmouth College and enlisted as a Marine in the British Army. Uh, at Thomas Jefferson's request, he attempted to travel around the world, starting in Europe and heading east. During his travels, he traveled throughout Polynesia, making a stop here in Hawaii before returning to the U.S. On another expedition, he was thrown into prison in Siberia, accused of being a U.S. spy and returned to Europe in chains. He died at age 37 in Africa, attempting to find the source of the Niger River. For today's Backyard Quiz, who was this extraordinary individual who came to Hawaii so early in the process of initial European contact? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing access to affordable housing to those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including ARC of Maui County. NareedHawaii.com. Higher wages, higher economic growth, higher productivity. What is not to like? The economic outcomes have to translate into something that people want that people like. I'm Kai Rizdal. Inflation is what's not to like. The politics of this economy. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. 
Support for HPR comes from BAMP Project, presenting Canadian rock band Nickelback, performing songs such as How You Remind Me, this Friday at Blaisdell Arena. Tickets available at bampproject.com. Lovely hula hands, graceful as the birds in motion. Gliding like the gulls over the ocean, lovely hula hands, Koli Mananie. Lovely hula hands, telling us. You know, it's only been about two weeks since the city launched a free hula show at the Waikiki Shell. It's a throwback to the Kodak hula show that started in the 1930s. show runs Sunday through Thursday, but the park watchdog group, the Kapilani Park Preservation Society, has raised concerns that the event is a prelude to a commercial luau show at night. The group maintains that would go against trust rules that say the park should be free and accessible to all. It's a reminder of a lawsuit that went all the way to the Hawaii Supreme Court in 1988. The city planned to build a Burger King and construction equipment yard. The society is asking the Attorney General's office to take a closer look at the arrangement between the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement and the city. Here's Alethea Redman, an attorney who serves as the society's president, explaining the history of the trust and its rules about commercialism at Kapilani Park. The Kodak Hula Show was allowed only as they didn't charge admission. They weren't allowed to sell anything from there. There were rules around it to prevent commercialization of the park. So yes, by all means, run a free hula show, but that takes some deep pockets. And that's why Pleasant Hawaiian Holidays stopped doing it a little over 20 years ago because they redirected their funds to donate to education. So if they want to do it and they think it's their kuleana, then yes, do it, but definitely follow the rules of the trust. The park was dedicated in 1877. It was a gift from several people. That part is kind of complicated, like the provenance of the land. But it was dedicated by King Kalakaua. And over the years, since 1877, the trust kind of got lost. The park was given as a public charitable trust, meaning it's a term and condition of acceptance of the gift, that it be free and open to the public forever. And other words that were used were uh, public recreation and, again, free and open to the public forever. So because there was a park commission that kind of got lost in the midst of time with government reorganization, the trust was lost and the city had been managing it, as they're supposed to manage it, and they started doing what they wanted. And in the 80s, they wanted to put a Burger King at the zoo facing outward and they wanted to do a few other things and there was a group of citizens that banded together and they were seeing what there was that would stop this use of the public space and they found the trust so they took it to the attorney general's office which is in charge of all public charitable trusts and the attorney general declined to follow through on it so they formed Kapilani Park Preservation Society in there and they took the city and Pentagram which is the Burger King Corporation the court, and it ended up in the Hawaii Supreme Court in a decision that came down in 1988. And the Supreme Court affirmed the trust, affirmed that it was a free and open to the public recreation ground, and that the city did not have the power to lease it. So they sent it back down to the lower court for rules that would help guide the use of the park by the city and by the public. And that's around the time when the golf driving range went away because that was a private commercial use. The zoo was pretty much grandfathered in as a proper use of a public park space. And at that time, the shell was allowed for special entertainments, and that word is words are used a couple times. And the Kodak Hula Show was specifically allowed as long as it didn't charge admission. 
and parking around the park was allowed as long as it was clearly marked for park users only. Signage is allowed only for things related to the park. So if you remember, there used to be an information kiosk in front of the zoo area, and that was specifically ordered to have only information related to Kapilani Park. So like the city couldn't advertise shows at the Blaisdell or anything else. So there was a series of rulings in the 90s that set out all the rules. And Kapilani Park Preservation Society was involved in those up till 1998, when we worked with the city when we disagreed with their land use of the park. What had happened is the government had wrongly sold pieces of the park over the years, again, thinking they could do what they wanted with it. So the city and KPPS kind of came to an agreement on land transfers that would make up for things that were irrevocably gone and still put land back under the trust. So like the War Memorial Park in front of the natatorium, that's under the trust. And some other very nice pieces of land were transferred back into the trust, specifically subject to the trust. So over the years since then, we've been kind of a watchdog group. And we have standing with the court if the attorney general doesn't enforce the trust. That's kind of the long story of how KPPS is involved with the park and how we came to be and why. So with this latest free hula show in the morning, we understand that there's a plan to start a luau where they would charge a couple hundred bucks for the show at entertainment. So how does the society see this in keeping with the trust? As far as the hula show being used as a wedge, a reason to have a commercial lease of the shell for five nights a week, of course, we don't agree with that. If you want to take on this hula show as a good works kind of thing, a benefit for the public, great. But you can't volunteer to do something expensive and then say, oh, well, I need to do something illegal to make up for it because I need the money to do this one good thing. It's like doing something bad on one hand and donating it on the other hand. So we don't agree with that. We don't agree it's a good reason. And we don't agree that the shell can be leased out by the city for any purpose. It's been about a week since this free show launched. We understand that as part of this plan that they are going to be using some of the parking. Yes, so we don't agree with that, of course, because of the intent to keep everything open to the public. People come, they want to surf, they want to use the park, and instead it's being used for people who are being paid on a commercial enterprise to be there. Now, the organization putting this on has a rental agreement with the city which has been amended once, and it's very vague on parking, but it clearly allows them to get permits for the free public parking areas for their workers, and it allows them to have an overnight parking person for security, it seems. So already there's an impact. Attendance is not, of course, what it was on the first day, but the amount of workers remains the same. So there are a number of problems in the way the hula show is being put on, I guess, or the way it's being run. And so what are you asking the AG's office to do? We are asking the AG's office to make a determination that, first of all, there's no rental ability of the city for the shell. And in fact, our Supreme Court already said that. The Supreme Court has said that since the leasing of lands of the park is not consistent with the original trust documents, legislation does not and could not confer upon the city power to make leases or deed of part or all of the lands of Kapiolani Park. We then turned to the question of whether the proposed transaction is a lease, and the city had chosen to denominate it a concession, but their denomination or characterization of the transaction is not binding. So we want the AG to look at this and say, it says rental agreement, it's a rental agreement, it's a commercial use of public charitable trust land, and it shouldn't be allowed. And the Kodak Hula Show should be allowed according to court orders, and they should not have any parking for it. And there's no reason to allow sales or marketplaces or anything else that isn't allowed by the trust in the court rulings. So basically, we're asking the AG to enforce the trust and the rules as written. The first day, of course, they bust in Keiki and Kapuna, and the place was packed. And we've received pictures since then showing the stands are fairly empty. CNHA advertised on the Super Bowl on TV. So you know how expensive that is. And now they're hiring a PR agency. Why are they doing this for what they call a free hula show, right? They want a monetary benefit out of it. And there are so many places, Catherine, where they could do 
a luau. They could go to Sand Island, which has a rich history. They could check with Aloha Tower Marketplace. They could go to KCC. They could go so many places, but instead they want this. And we always say everybody wants a piece of the park. So our mission is to say, no, it's free and open to the public. So don't spend umpteen dollars advertising your thing at the Waikiki Shell area when all you want to do is charge admission. That's just, it's not really straight up either. Do we know when the luau shows are supposed to start? You know, we don't really, because when I met with them in December, they said one thing, and their original lease, or prepared at the end of September, shows them starting to perform on January 17th, which obviously hasn't happened. And then on January 19th, they have a new rental agreement, a modified, and it has the entire month of January non-performing with performances starting February 18th. And it's not clear at all from this what their intent is because their contract shows no rental amount for the shell, even though they show performance. And they show the amphitheater, which is the hula show area, being charged for that day. And then they have a bunch of performance days that they don't charge for. And I went through the two leases and highlighted the differences in the schedule. And it's huge. It's just not clear what they mean when they give performance nights but don't charge a lease rent for it. And it's not clear what they mean when they say you can't have food concessions unless it's okayed by the city. There's nothing in here okaying food concessions, but they plan to serve dinner, and they're inviting vendors in for the hula show area. So the actions don't fit the apparent contract. That was Alethea Redman, who is with the Kapilani Park Preservation Society. Uh, the State Attorney General's office says it's still reviewing the society's request, and we've also reached out to the city's Office of Enterprise Services for clarification, but have yet to hear back. While the city looks at ways to monetize underutilized spaces in the park, we take a closer look at the latest effort to provide more evening entertainment right in the heart of Waikiki. We talked to Sean D., Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer for Outrigger Resorts and Hotels last week, about the plans underway to develop a Cirque du Soleil Waikiki show at the Beachcomber. Uh, Outrigger also offers concerts and stand-up comedy at the Blue Note Club and its Waikiki Beach Resort. Here's D. The Waikiki Beachcomber was the first major renovation that the company undertook after the Kelly family sold to uh, KSL Capital. So we're really, we're actually really proud of that property. We finished the initial renovation, which was rooms, the lobby, obviously Maui Brewing Company, the Hawaii Roma Cafe. We finished that work um, in middle of 2018. Unfortunately, we had to shut the property during COVID, if you can remember that, uh, and, then, yes. and then reopen. But we always had plans to renovate the theater. There's a large uh, 20,000 square foot theater that's on the fourth floor of the property. It's accessible through the lobby and for many, many years we had a partnership with uh, with Roberts of Hawaii, people may re- recall that, but the theater needed a major renovation. So we're spending millions and millions of dollars working with G70, the local architect yes. is really taking the lead on it. And it's about a year and a half renovation, so quite significant, and literally gutting the whole property and then replumbing it, rewiring it, you know, everything will be new. So our, our commitment to, to Cirque du Soleil when we signed the agreement is that we would deliver them a literally brand new state-of-the-art theater as if it's literally coming out of the ground. But it's effectively a, a, a renovation of an existing space within the Outrigger Waikiki Beachcomber Hotel. And so what will this mean for Waikiki, this new venue in the show? Well, you, you, you asked earlier about Blue Note, and as you know, that's a, a partnership that we entered into about Eight, almost nine years ago, if I recall the date correctly, and um, I'm, I'm actually quite proud. I worked on that on that deal. A lot of people did, and you know that was a little bit of a swing, right? Society Seven had been in that space for many years, but yes. it also had sat dark for a number of years. And so um, the Blue Note relationship has been a really, really good one for us, and something that was kind of our first step um, into the entertainment space. I mean. Outrigger is blessed to have great partnerships with, you know, Dukes and TS Restaurants and now Monkey Pot over at the Outrigger Reef. And uh, obviously at Kanakapila, we have live entertainment, you know, every night. So, you know, live entertainment is not foreign to us, 
but an investment like Blue Note, you know, was kind of the fir- the first step. CERT takes it to a whole nother level. I'm a frequent patron of Blue Note and was just really pleased because it's just wonderful for residents to have that outlet and to see the caliber of shows that uh, that come through there. Well, it's, it's interesting that that you reference Blue Note because. And there's some people still in the market that haven't been, which I'm always surprised at because it's uh, we operate 365 days a year, generally two shows a night. You know, so 700 plus shows a year that we're we're hosting at Outrigger Waikiki, and uh, a really diverse range of, of artists. You know, the the initial plan, frankly, was to do primarily jazz. That was what the Blue Note teams sort of that's their focus. And we said, well, I think we need to be more diverse, have more Hawaiian performers, obviously, have um, comedy showcases. You know. Global acts, and uh, I think they they were surprised how popular Hawaiian artists have been at Blue Note. And in fact, last night uh, I went to see Henry Capono, our good friend Henry Capono, and he does a, a program called Artist to Artist. You may have, have seen it, where he brings emerging artists out as well as some legacy acts. He had Keila Beamer last night, which was awesome, and and his wife. Um, and so it's a different show than Henry does at you know Duke's on Sunday. And so what Blue Note has provided, I think, is a, a platform. For a lot of artists, Hawaiian artists specifically, to do a different show than they would normally be associated with. And, and what we found is, again, when we did the initial deal with Bluna, we thought it would be 70, 80 percent, you know, tourists. All the visitors would come. In fact, about 65 percent of the business at Blue Note is local. Uh, and so we're thinking about that as it relates to Cirque and, and recognizing that we want to make sure that we develop a showroom, invest in it, and then develop and produce a show that's going to have as much appeal to the local community as it would to the to the visitor in- industry. So we're super excited. Obviously, Cirque's a global brand, and we talked about the type of investment that uh, we wanted to make in the showroom. You know, we said it has to be first class. It's got to be, you know, an iconic partner, and, uh, and Cirque came to mind to us very early, and it took a long time to negotiate a deal, but uh, we're happy that we did, and we're excited to, to bring Cirque to Cirque du Soleil Hawaii to life, um, December of, uh, of 2024. We're, I like to say we're on, on schedule and we're on budget. We announced with the mayor um, last year that we'd be bringing Cirque here. And uh, everybody asks us, the question we always get is, oh, you're bringing Cirque, how long are they going to be here, for a few weeks or months? We're like, no, it's not a, it's not a touring show. This will be a, a residency show. So, you know, if you look at the average length of a Cirque show in Vegas. They've been there about 30 years or so. I think O is celebrating 39 years this year, which is pretty incredible. That's amazing. But the average show is, is about 30 years in length, and we've signed an agreement for a 10-year residency here at the uh, Atwater Waikiki Beachcomber. Well, I have seen O, and it's a fabulous show with the incredible, you know, water features and and the moving of sets. It, it's a it's a real a real production, uh, and you know, I'm just wondering about the flexibility that you might have to have, uh, you know, for a Cirque show. Well, it's a great question, and so when we um, designed in, in obviously in collaboration with G70 as the lead architect and and Cirque, they put a lot of the parameters in place in terms of the size of the stage and the ceiling heights that they needed and the weight for the rigging, et cetera. I mean, it's a very complicated process. And so we're designing effectively to their specs. And from a process standpoint, we'll turn the room over to them middle of 2024. So sometimes June, July, the room becomes theirs. And then they bring in all the set design work, all the theatrical equipment, the LED monitors that they're going to need, all the sound equipment, all the things that are specific to the show itself, including all the props that are on the stage. So it's going to be a full... Cirque du Soleil show. Now, this room is not as big as the theater, for instance, that O is in, so it is a little bit smaller, but it's actually a little bit larger than a show they do in uh, Cancun uh, with mm-hmm. a, a resort company called Vedanta, and the show is Hoya. It's been running for about, I guess, about six years or so. Very successful show. It's about 500 seat capacity. Our show will be about 800 seats, so good size. Again, not as big as O, but fantastic for, uh, for the Waikiki market, so we're excited to continue working right now, so we're doing, again, all the heavy lifting, if you will, and the construction and the build-out of the space, but it's all done to the specs that have been provided to us by, uh, by Cirque du Soleil Las Vegas. So what do you think then this will mean as far as the nightlife in Waikiki? I mean, you know, I think of O and the Bellagio, and, and you know, it, it's such a draw. And so then to have this show that's anchored right there in Waikiki, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll hope to have a seat for you at opening opening night. I know that hopefully will be a an in demand uh, in demand seat. You know, but you know, one one thing that you know we observed here uh, at Outrigger, and you know, we've been obviously 
in this market for 75 plus years, right? And so for the last few years, there's been a real push for, you know, higher spending visitors and we need to attract the mindful visitor, but also the visitor that's going to be respectful, but also spend money and stay in Waikiki. And, and that's the, it's just, that's a good objective, I guess. But if you don't provide them the things to spend the money on, then, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit irresponsible for us, I think, as the, as the host, whether it's the host city, the host venue, the host, uh, the host state. And so, we're excited, though, to add this, right, this this new venue, but more importantly, uh, Cirque du Soleil and this new entertainment concept to provide visitors with something to do in Waikiki, something to do, you know, late night as well. There's not a lot of late night entertainment options, as, as you know. And so um, we do think it's going to attract a higher spending visitor, and it's also going to provide not only guests but uh, but families uh, an opportunity to, to spend money here right in the heart of Waikiki. And, you know, if you do the math, there's probably – 20,000 uh, hotel rooms that are within walking distance. So you don't need to get on a bus. You don't need to take a shuttle, you know, and head to all of the other parts of the island. It's an opportunity, you know, right, we call it sort of the 50-yard line of Waikiki where the, the beachcomber is located. So we're excited. We also know it's a, a big responsibility, you know. You know, we, we talked to Cirque for a long, long time to their creative team um, about the process, you know, we didn't want a show from Vegas. That was a Vegas show. We didn't want a show about, you know, the X Games or, or martial arts. We wanted to, to, to do a show about Waikiki and with paying a lot of respect to wine culture, music, language, uh, and they heard us. And so we've uh, retained Aaron Salah. You may know yes. Aaron. Aaron is a, a Ph.D., been in the, the visitor community a long time, was with HTA. He's HVCB's marketing chair, good, fr- good friend of mine. And he's, he was retained as their cultural director uh, over a year ago. And so he's guided them through the process. But their creative team has spent literally weeks and weeks and weeks um, just in exploration, you know, un- trying to understand the culture, trying to understand the sense of history. And that's Aaron's PhD is actually somewhat based on the history of Waikiki itself and even down to the showroom and who played in the showroom years ago with Don Ho and the history of Don the Beachcomber. And we're excited to bring this story to life because the story is going to be the story of Waikiki. It's going to be the story of Hawaii. And we've brought on, in addition to Aaron, we've got Manoela Yap. You may, may know him, the costume designer. So he's part of the he's part of the show. We've got Akumahula Hivavan, you may know as well, probably one of the top uh, in the state, so she's part of the process. We've got the team from G70 that, that I mentioned, Marquez Marzan, mm-hmm. who's over at the Bishop Museum. So we've assembled really a world-class um, group of authentic, again, local Hawaiian storytellers and uh, and cultural leaders to kind of help us on our journey. So everything from the logo, the name of the show, the casting, the different acts, uh, it's it's as authentic as it gets. And so we're hoping that the local community really embraces it. And, and again, it's going to be... It's going to be the story will be told through a circus lens. So we'll have the acrobats and the humor and the beauty that uh, that they're known for, but all with a very very strong sense of place rooted in Hawaii. Yeah, well, uh, I can't wait. It's exciting. I mean, your team certainly has uh, street cred, uh, and uh, it, it will be just interesting to see how the audience responds to it. I, I guess for the the local residents, is there going to be enough parking? <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully. We, we, Thank, thank goodness for Uber, right? I don't want to give a plug to Uber, but um, you've got Uber and Lyft. You've got a lot of options. There's plenty of walking. But there's there's good parking in Waikiki. I mean, across, uh, we've got right next to International Marketplace. Obviously, the Ohana East is right around the corner. And so we hope Waikiki won't be a barrier to the local community. But it's, it's, a, it's a fair point about access. And one of the things we're exploring right now is we really want to make sure that local families, Kamaina families, can afford to come. And so we're we're absolutely going to have very very aggressive local pricing. So we'll have our combine discount program in place. We're actually exploring having specific nights of the week that are really focused on the local market. And when I say the local market, it's a family show. And so we want to make sure that for a, a family of four that may be coming from Kali'i or you know Eva Beach, that they can actually afford to get here and enjoy the show just like any other uh, visitor coming in from uh, from Southern California or from Japan. We actually have. A lot of interest in Japan. Japan is the number two market for Cirque, and their touring business there has been very, very strong. They just toured there in 2023. So we know that the Japanese market will respond, and, and we believe probably, assuming it comes back strong in 2024 and 25, which we're hoping it'll be a big part of the uh, big part of the attendance. Okay. All right. Well, looking forward to it. But thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No, appreciate uh, all you guys do. I'm a listener, and okay. um, I'm glad you're a fan of the Blue Note, and uh, 
looking forward to another 10 years there and, and looking forward to opening Cirque du Soleil Hawaii at the Arrigar Waikiki Beachcomber in December. And that was Sean D., uh, Chief Commercial Officer for Outrigger Resorts and Hotels, which will play host to the new Cirque Waikiki show that will open later this year. Support for HPR comes from UH Presents, featuring Russian classical pianist Anna Genyushine, performing March 3rd at UH Manoa Orvis Auditorium. Tickets at outreach.hawaii.edu slash events. Today on The Daily, how anger over the war in Gaza could shape the outcome of the presidential campaign in Michigan. An early test will come today when the state holds its Democratic primary. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Moby.com. for our Backyard Quiz Answer. Earlier in the show, we asked you what to identify one of the first documented Americans who uh, came to the Hawaiian Islands in March 1775, just as a revolution was about to erupt in the colonies, our young adventurer enlisted in the British Army before transferring to the Navy's Royal Marines. A year later, in July 1776, he departed Plymouth Harbor, crewing for Captain Cook's HMS Resolution. They sailed around the world, heading into the South Pacific, landing at various Polynesian islands where our mystery sailor, John Ledyard, is uh, believed to uh, be the first Euro-American to be tattooed. Um, Ledyard survived Cook's final voyage voyage throughout the Pacific uh, in 1778, and he continued to traverse the world. He sailed to the east, continued to Russia, and while in Africa, accidentally poisoned himself. He died at the age of 37 in Egypt. Congrats to Alan. Uh, he was calling from Oahu. He shared that he has read parts of uh, Ledyard's travel journal, which is awesome. I love those original accounts of our explorers. But that's our backyard quiz for today. If you have an idea for us, email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And that wraps it up for us today. Tomorrow we'll hear about a proposed University of Hawaii program to develop the use of artificial intelligence to help prevent wildfires in our islands. Share your comments or questions. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.